0: latest edition of our NCAA Social Series. This is episode 43. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by Naima Stevenson-Starks, who is in charge of the hearing operations and NCAA Vice President, as well as NCAA Vice President John Duncan, who is in charge at enforcement. Um, We want to, in this episode, look at the enforcement process, uh, certainly in general, and then, oh, of course, during a pandemic. Um, which has certainly changed everything for all of us in every facet of the way we do our jobs. And so um, if I can, with both of you, just let's first deal with that overarching issue. And Naima, uh, Naima, I will start with you. Uh, And then John, if you could sort of piggyback on the backside of this, about how has working from home, the pandemic, the inability to go out into the field to interview, to investigate, How has that affected the enforcement process?
1: Yeah, so thanks Andy. Um, It's actually interesting our staff of hearing operations that support the committees and panels of the various committees that hear um, infractions cases um, had to pivot as we all had pretty quickly um, to a remote environment and working from our homes as you've noted. The interesting thing about our work um, is that all of our committee members and panel members are all across the country. Um, So a lot of what we were doing previous to that was remote anyway, um, because we didn't have them physically in the national office with us. Um, So our team, I think, was able to, you know, again, pivot pretty quickly and it was seamless for our purposes um, in terms of continuing to provide um, the same level of support um, you know, that we had previously, given the nature of the work that, that we're doing. What we miss is a little bit of the face-to-face interaction and team collaboration um, in the office. Um, and, and we'll be looking forward to getting back to that, you know, hopefully sometime here soon.
2: Andy, I think the answer is similar for enforcement than uh, what Naima just shared. COVID the pandemic certainly impacted our work, um, but not necessarily in the way that you asked in your question. It did not affect the number of investigations that we were able to complete, the number of cases that we had to process. Like Naima, we did things a little bit differently. Um, in fact, uh, during calendar year 2020, enforcement submitted a record high number of cases uh, to the committees on infractions. And that happened under less than ideal circumstances. So I'm really proud of, of the enforcement staff, um, but also our partners out there and our friends on campus um, who, who also were struggling with the same challenges we were and, and nevertheless kept investigations moving. So I'm pleased to report that, um, that of the impacts that COVID had one of them was not uh, to adversely impact the number of
0: investigations that we completed last year so John for just some general sort of um, you know information for those watching just let's let's base let's I wouldn't say dumb it down but let me I want to get some baseline here um, what part of the investigation is that responsibility shared by the enforcement staff
2: Yeah, um, much of it, and that question, Andy, if you're okay, I may zoom out for just a moment and give a quick overview of the infractions process, uh, or at least the mission of the whole infractions process. It's legislated, and your question gets to the enforcement staff's uh, role in that. We are one part of a a bigger process, but there are others that are all linked, and they're all related. There are different roles um, and responsibility for each group, each component, But interestingly, Andy, there's a singular mission for the infractions process in a nutshell that is to protect compliance programs at a national level across the association or at least across the division to make sure that compliant schools are not disadvantaged by their commitment to compliance. And so enforcement doesn't um, draft the rules, as most people know, neither do we decide penalties on the back end. Those are ends and we operate in the middle there Andy. to your question. So our role is to be aware of potential violations um, and to decide best how those should be addressed. Uh, some of that we learn from schools when they self-report violations. That's a condition and obligation of membership and we encourage that but we only get about a third of our information about serious violations from schools and so we can't rely on that entirely. We have a network of sources to help us know what's going on um, beyond what a school may share with us. But once the information comes into your question from whatever source, we work together with the school to find out what happened. And that's normally a collaborative process working together with them, but it's not the the end. Um, If violations are not substantiated after uh, an investigation, then we move on and so does the school. If violations are substantiated, if we believe that there could be an infraction. We work through um, one of several different paths toward resolution, we can talk about those. Sometimes schools in the meantime take corrective action when they know that there's a violation, and again, that's encouraged, um, but ultimately the NCAA committees or the independent adjudicators decide the severity of violations and what penalties are appropriate And they do that after the investigation is over, after our part, and they do that on behalf of the whole association, uh, or at least on behalf of the division.
0: John, real quick before I get to Naima here, um, you know, one aspect actually in recruiting and some other aspects of, of what we've all been dealing with is there are positive ways of using Zoom. And while your investigators may not be able to be on the ground and having, for lack of a better term, you know, almost depositions, if you will, face-to-face um, and going all around the country, how much has Zoom allowed you maybe to reach more people? Because you can uh, virtually and, you know, rather than hopping all over the place uh, to try to talk to people.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's helped a lot, Andy. There are some downsides as well on the relationship front. We've talked about those. We'd rather mingle in person with uh, with member institutions. But From an investigative perspective, you're exactly right. There's a lot less travel, there's a lot less wasted time in airports and hotels, and we can get on an interview and do back to back to back to back interviews in much less time than we could before. Um, Schedules have freed up and the technology is such that we can can conduct a fair interview with an individual, have his or her counsel participate via um, video as well or remotely. And it's actually gone really well. It's been more efficient, than that. and actually, it may be part of the reason we were able to get through as many cases last year as I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago.
0: Yeah, and to Naima's point earlier, I know from being on the other side and covering a lot of this in decades past that um, you know a lot of these are conference calls uh, when they get to the infractions. When, when the committee on infractions would hear cases, right. they're not always in the same place. You know, for whatever reason, maybe not everyone in the same place. So obviously this is another way that you could still continue that. So to that point, what are some of the potential resolutions uh, from the you know, hearings case once allegations are found? What are some of the resolutions Naima?
1: Yeah, so great question, Andy. Um, and there are several paths that cases can be resolved once um, John and his staff um, complete their work um, and, and issue some allegations. Um, and I do think it is important just to reiterate um, one thing that John said. At the end of the day, the process is designed um, to represent the interests of the entire association, right? Um, so all of the member institutions that are presumably, as John noted, um, you know, abiding by the rules. So that's the that's the mission of of the process, and that's what our committee members. Um, and our panel members on the independent side are charged with doing looking out for the interest of the entirety of the association, while pro- providing a fair process to that one institution or those individuals that are be- appearing before them. Um, so there is a couple ways that things can be resolved. One is through a written record, so to speak. And that's been in existence for quite some time when there's some agreement um, on um, the issues that um, um, result in the violations. Um, That's called our summary disposition um, process. Um, And there's a a writing that is done, um, enforcement, um, the institution and any involved parties really agree to the majority of the issues that are are being presented and that violations occurred. And then what the committee does is take that report and then determine what penalty should be assessed. Um, So that's one way, um, the summary disposition process is one way that cases can be resolved. Something that is newer and that is a slight variation on that is a negotiated resolution. And that's where the enforcement staff and the institution and the parties um, can agree that violations occurred um, but they also take that additional step um, to agree on a penalty framework usually that's guided by cases that you know have occurred in the past um, that have been penalized at a certain at a certain way in a certain way um, and those are agreed to in advance that still um, andy has to be submitted to the committee on infractions for its ultimate approval and that's that membership touch um, to make sure that the, um, again, interests of the entirety of the association are able to be resolved in that negotiated resolution framework. So that's something that is a newer part of our process and has been used tremendously um, because we've had um, um, quite a few cases, I think, um, upwards of 20 um, that have been resolved in the negotiated resolution um, 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 framework. Um, and then you get to a contested case. Um, and that's where we now have a couple of different paths where a contested case can be resolved. And that's when it will likely result in a hearing. That's either before the Committee on Infractions and that has been there um, you know, um, during the existence of our uh, fractions process. Um, and that is comprised what I think people sometimes don't remember is that we do have some public voices, independent voices, so to speak, that have been part of the Committee on Infractions for decades. Um, So that is one way through a hearing before the Committee on Infractions, and that decision can get appealed to the Infractions Appeals Committee, and we've got a smaller body that also is comprised of volunteers from our member institutions and conferences and a couple of public members. And then we've got this new process, which is the independent accountability resolution process. And we have um, the body of adjudicators are called the independent resolution panel. It's a group of 15 that are wholly disconnected um, from institutions and conferences that will ultimately be sitting in judgment of these cases. So it could be a hearing before that body um, in in the cases that come through the independent structure.
0: So two things, one uh, among many pet peeves of mine uh, (laughs) is the uh, lack of information on the way people think the national office works. So this is another great example to educate people. I don't wanna sound condescending, but the truth is that the staff does not necessarily decide the case. Uh, and this drives me crazy. Oh, the NCAA said blah, 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 whatever. You know, they hammered or this or that. No, it is a committee cool, on interactions right. or as this latter one we just discussed, the independent body, um, which is made up of membership. And it could be a professor from GW. It could be you know a compliant. It could be all these random people, faculty, you name it, commissioners, at ADs around the country, not located in Indianapolis. So before I move on to what that you were just saying, Naima, about that independent body, because I want to get to that in a second. John, you're in the trenches. How <laughs> often does that come across where you where you almost want to just scream and say, look, like, I didn't decide your penalty. You know, this is the membership, not everyone who works in this office in Indy. It happens all the time,
2: Andy, and uh, I say a lot. I get, I get a lot of hate mail every day. Much of it is about the rules, which I didn't write. Much of it is about the penalties, which I didn't prescribe, but on the upside, one of my favorite things to say, and I say it a lot to ADs, to presidents, to coaches, um, when there is a disagreement in an infractions case, and reasonable minds can disagree sometimes. I say a lot, look, it's fine. Reasonable minds can disagree, but in the end, your colleagues will resolve this dispute. They are presidents, ADs, commissioners, compliance professionals, coaches, and they look a lot more like you than they do me. And that's usually a conversation stopper. And it's the light bulb goes on, and uh, and I share that pet peeve. I wish I wish more people understood. Our role is, is significant, but ultimately the the outcomes, the decisions rest with either the committee on infractions or the infractions
0: appeals committee, or now this independent path. So Naomi, I want to go back, I had to get that off my chest, Um, to uh, the new independent body. So for those that don't don't quite grasp that, um, and this may kind of dovetail into what happened in 2017, but what determines a case gets shifted, you know, in that direction under this new directive?
1: Yeah, so great question, Andy. And one of the things that I think is important to note is that Any case that comes into this new independent accountability resolution process will have resided for some period of time in the peer review process that we've just kind of went through. No case is going to be able to come directly into the independent structure without to your question it being there being a request for the case to be referred and that can come three ways from Mr Duncan and the enforcement staff can request the case um, be referred into the independent structure, Um, the committee on infractions once they have jurisdiction of a case and that's not until after a notice of allegations is issued by john staff they can make a request for a case to be referred into the independent structure and then the final way is the institution itself can make a request for a case to be referred once that request is made we have a body um, called the infractions referral committee you know we like our Acronym soup. Um, so it's the IRC um, that is involved in um, making the determination as to whether or not a case is should be moved over from the peer review process to the independent structure. That body is comprised of our chair and vice chair of our Division One Council. So that is the connectivity to the Division One governance structure. There is one representative from the Committee on Infractions, one representative from the um, Infractions Appeals Committee, and that body is chaired by one of the members, 15, one of the 15 members that serve on the Independent Resolution Panel. So that's the body of adjudicators now in the independent structure. So, two points to make on this, Andy, that I think are important. One, that body cannot act on any case that is not requested to be moved. Um, so there could be a case out there that somebody's like, oh, well, why didn't that go in the independent structure? Because of certain characteristics or what have you, they can only act on a case that is requested to be moved into the independent structure. The second piece that I think um, is important is that everyone has, even though someone makes a request for a case to be moved over, every party known to the case at the time has the opportunity to respond to that request. So they can state their position. We don't think it should be moved. We think it should be moved. What have you. Um, But there's um, a couple of things just to make sure that people understand about this new structure. That's a process in and of itself. You got to get the request. You have a certain amount of time for everybody to respond to that request. And then that committee, the infractions referral committee is the body that's responsible for making the determination of whether or not that case um, is in the, it's in the interest of the association to move that case from the peer review um, to the independent structure. So help me out.
0: I'm not a lawyer. I come from a family of lawyers though. (laughs) Um, And so I'm the one, you know, the odd duck here in my family, mm-hmm. but isn't it a little bit almost like basically the Supreme Court? You know, I mean, in the sense that they don't just randomly pluck cases, it has to work its way through the system. It's not suddenly the Supreme Court's going to hear something that never was heard in a court of law prior, uh, you know, whether it's district, federal, and working it with its way up to the Supreme Court. Am, am I right in terms of a little bit of a parallel like that?
1: You're right on the concept that they cannot act on anything that's not already living in the peer review process, number one, because that's the only way that it can be requested to be referred. And you're also correct. I analogize it to like a cert petition, sort of. So it's just not coming in automatically. There has to be a request. And this infractions referral committee is the body that will determine whether or not um, you know it gets in or not, and it has its own you know kind of factors that it looks at to det- to make that determination. So I like the the family legal um, um, you know prowess getting in you.
0: <laughs> All right, so let's go back. I, I referenced 2017. So the Southern District of, uh, of New York, the FBI case, obviously. Those that are watching are well familiar with that. It was very highly publicized. Um, But there is a process. uh, And we don't, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong here. I don't think we have a full conclusion on any one case. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but I I know there were a number of potential cases that came out of that. Uh, If both of you could comment on just sort of where we stand and also just sort of speak to what the general timeline is Four cases. Yeah, Andy, I'll,
2: I'll start there because just sequentially those cases started with us. Um, and I'll say, you know, they are all working through the various processes that Naima has, has discussed. I know many of the viewers and many in the membership are concerned about the duration of those cases, the length of time that it's taken. And we, we certainly understand that. Um, but I can tell you that, that everybody is working to get those cases resolved as quickly as possible. Um, but beyond that, I think I'll defer to Naima to talk about the, the posture of those cases, because they're either resolved, and there is at least one that's completely resolved, um, or otherwise moving in that direction through one of these resolution paths.
1: Yeah, Andy, John is exactly right. Um, all of the cases that have those touch points to the Southern District of New York um, related issues. And obviously from an NCA framework, there's gonna be slightly different in terms of the way that you know we'll approach these cases because it's not about whether laws were broken, but whether NCA rules were you know, violated in some form or fashion. So um, as John noted, each of the cases that have one of those touch points has either worked its way through or is currently working its way through either the peer review process. So that would be our Committee on Infractions. And in uh, certain instances, our Infractions Appeals Committee, if a decision did come out and it was appealed. Um, And then there are also cases um, that have been publicly announced um, that are in working their way through the independent um, um, accountability resolution process as well. Um, And they all are working through as, you know, kind of the legislative um, parameters around those cases, um, you know, would would dictate. Um, While we talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, how we all have, you know, made um, managed through what are difficult circumstances. Um, With the with the pandemic um, that we're all confronting um, and our institutions have been, you know, very um, adept at um, being able to keep things moving as have we and including pivoting from in person hearings, which obviously wouldn't be safe to conduct. Um, at the moment with the number of people that would be required to be there to virtual hearings, not dissimilar to what our court systems are doing as well, um, given given the environment that we're in. Um, there have been some you know, um, um, delays that would be the result of um, certain instances where people were not able to either um, be able to participate um, in some of the timing for um, the cases um, as they were processing or providing information because there have been impacts because of a global pandemic. Um, that's just a, a reality. One of the things that I you know, really do think has been pretty phenomenal, um, and, and John alluded to this with respect to his staff, um, our um, staff has been able to continue to move at the Clip that it would take to get these cases resolved, but we do have to be responsive when things happen, um, whether those be furloughs for institutions or um, people, you know, being, um, you know, involved in issues that are more directly related to the pandemic. Um, that that is something that has to be accommodated as we're trying to get these cases um, to conclusion.
0: So to that point, Naima. Uh, How close are we, uh, and I know you probably can't name names if you will, but how close are we to having some more resolutions based on that 2017 disclosure from uh, SDNY uh, sometime, you know, before the summer or before the end of uh, 2021?
1: I do think, and you know, as John noted, there's a number of cases that, you know, have these touches and they reside both in the peer review and the independent structure. I do think that we will see resolution to some more of these cases um, here in the next, um, you know, several months um, related to having the cases heard and then decisions coming out related to those cases. Um, But those Time parameters you know, are highly dependent on everybody being able to um, you know, provide the information that is needed, be available as you've noted um, and we talked about before, you know, the virtual environment makes it a little easier um, to get people together, um, but there's still challenges um, with doing that as well. Um, so I do think we'll have some more resolutions on cases that have been um, in the pipeline probably a little longer Um, than others. One thing I would note, though, and we haven't really touched on this in the timeline, and this impacts kind of John's part of the shop a little more so, but we just for clarity, I understand the 2017 Um, timeframe is what a lot of people kind of point to, but we did have, you know, a two year period almost where we were not able to move on these cases as a result of, you know, the government's, um, indication that we had to not be involved, um, until they were able to resolve the the matters, um, more, um, in, in the, in the government's process. Um, So that is significant because that means it's not until 2019 when we were really able to um, move forward with John's work on the on the investigative side and then the cases, you know, on varying timelines were able to get into the adjudicative part of the process. Um, but, but it wasn't, you know, all the way back in 2017 or 2018, it wasn't until after 2019 that the cases started to move their way, move their way through and that's, our
0: process. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, a couple other quick things here. Uh, you know, one is, and this has been in the news, obviously. So this season already we've seen Arizona and Auburn self-impose a postseason ban. And we've seen this before. Teams have done this. Uh, not just in men's basketball and other sports, but when that happens uh, in general, how does the committee on infractions or this new, you know, third party independent uh, board, what, what's the sort of the, the way in which they handle stuff like that when a school says, you know what, we're going to take the penalty even before you resolve it.
1: So Andy, as you said, you know, first of all, it's not John or I, you know, that has to factor in those those decisions. It, it, as you noted, our, our committees and our panels um, that ultimately have to make the determination about whether violations occurred and what penalties um, should be assessed. They obviously will take into account Whatever actions that the institution um, or any party, you know, has self-imposed on itself, but it doesn't get um, kind of adopted, um, you know, until the committee makes a determination about what the appropriate penalties are in any particular case. They will obviously consider whatever information um, is presented to them as they are trying to adjudicate these matters, including um, any self-imposed penalties. Um, But it's ultimately within their authority and their purview to make the determination as to what are the appropriate penalties in any particular case. Um, And another thing to note, and you did allude to this, this is not a a new phenomenon in a, you know, self-regulating, self-governing infractions process. That is what institutions do. They self-impose penalties um, and pretty much all of the cases that come before the Committee on Infractions and the um, this new Independent Resolution Panel will be the same. Um, institutions take actions, corrective measures, prior to coming to um, appear before them, whether it's through the writings or, um, you know, in a in a, in a hearing.
0: Yeah, and obviously uh, they can adopt them. They can add to them. Uh, obviously, they can uh, ignore it. Uh, so that's up to the committee on infractions with the new independent body. John, a couple other quick things before we go. Um, first off, I- I'm curious in your uh, assessment of cases lately where we've had some tougher penalties. You know, there's been the coach control, the game suspension. Um, how much have you seen the effect of that? You know, maybe deterring, you know, potential violations in the last year, two years, as there's been a little bit more of a heavier penalty individually sometimes on coaches uh, than maybe we saw 10 years ago
2: yeah I, mean, I, I don't speak for the whole coach community but I but I believe that coaches are aware I know that they are aware of penalties that are that are prescribed <coughs> as it relates to their colleague coaches either by the institution or by the committee on infractions or the, or the the um, the other adjudicative body the independent panel um, and they're very mindful of that. That's that we we hear a lot about. Well, that penalty was too light for that coach. You should have done more. Or it was too heavy. Why did you hit that coach so hard? And to our discussion earlier, it wasn't us. But um, not all penalties have the same deterrent value, Andy. Um, some of them are more impactful than others at deterring behaviors. In the in the real possibility of a, of a coach, a head coach, not being able to to, to coach his or her team for a particular time, I believe is, is a significant deterrent. And so it's one of the reasons we don't take any pleasure by the way in coaches being suspended. It's one of the many reasons why we would rather prevent a violation than process one. But I do believe that it is a, it is a um, impactful penalty. People are very mindful of it. It impacts the coach, the institution um, and others. And I, and I believe that it has a deterrent effect for sure.
0: And so the last thing, if I can give you both to comment on this, is looking forward. Um, We know there are going to be changes in NIL, uh, which, you know, certainly could have an effect on what used to be a violation may not be a violation. We've seen that with the draft. You know, there's been a lot of used to be no agent involvement. Now there's, you know, approved agent involvement. So things have evolved. I mean, way back to when, you know, certain kinds of phone calls. I mean, everything has evolved over time. Uh, and, and the staff and the enforcement and the committee have had to adapt. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, how has your respective staffs dealt with that adaptation and, and in preparation for what will certainly be even more so going forward? And John, maybe you can go first and then Naima, you can end it.
2: Yeah, uh, it's, you know, I hate to be flippant about it, but I, but I will say for enforcement, you know, addressing, anticipating addressing, implementing significant change is really just another day in the office <clears throat> for us. It's, it's part of our history. It will be <clears throat> part of this year. We all know that. Um, and so what, what we do, to your question, is on the front end, when, when we know there are significant policy issues out there, we continue to make ourselves available to help think through those issues as requested and if, and if, and if it's helpful um, to inform those decision makers on the policy on the front end. On the back end, We'll provide the best service we can uh, within the regulatory structure adopted by the members and consistent with their expert, uh, with their expectations. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we we want to anticipate. We want to share with those decision makers what we've seen, what behaviors we can expect, what we hear from our network of sources. Provide that to the decision makers, and then um, and then implement and execute as, as best we can when we see behaviors manifest. Um, because as soon as, as a rule gets put in place, we know that there are people who are already ready to circumvent it and um, we'll raise those issues as appropriate, bring them to the committee on infractions for adjudication by the, uh, either the independent panel or the membership through the committee on infractions. And so it's another day in the office
1: for us, Andy. Now Yes. And I, you know, I think very similar to what John has described, you know, both the staff, but then more importantly, the committee and the panels um, that will have to see these cases on the back end are already starting to think um, about you know, uh, different um, ways to approach these issues. But ultimately, it's kind of a a little bit of a wait and see because we have to see what the framework ends up ultimately looking like um, that the membership adopts. And then we're going to be, you know, responsible for figuring out where those still areas remain um, that the membership has concerns about potential abuse um, um, and trying to circumvent the rules as John has noted. So I think it's a little bit of a wait and see, but certainly with the high antenna, um, because particularly our committees and our panels um, will have to deal with these issues as they are presented to them.
0: Hey, you know, one last thing and stop me if I'm putting you on the spot here, but I was just curious just as you guys were talking and this could happen in the real world obviously of like if if the speed limit is 55, you got a ticket, and a month from now, oh, now the speed limit is 65. And you're saying, wait a minute, my case didn't come up, and now you've changed the speed limit on me. I'm just curious, has that come up before? Where, because of the process, maybe it took time, and you had a case or cases, John or Naima, that you know what, three years ago, two years ago, whatever. Uh, yeah, that was a violation, and rules have changed, and now it's not. But when it, when it happened, it was a violation. Uh, that's when I don't, you know, I'm not gonna use the word crime, but when the violation, I guess, you know, occurred, that was not within the, the rules. Uh, I'm just curious to either one of you, how often, if ever, has that ever occurred?
2: Yeah, I'll be interested in the thoughts. of um, us, but it, it does occur. I would not say that it's daily or even yearly, but the analysis is what you just described, Andy, and that is if it was impermissible at the time, the school, the coach, the program who engaged in that behavior at the time, received an unfair competitive advantage over other schools who are not engaging in that behavior at the time. And Even if the rule is subsequently deregulated, um, we would still conduct an investigation presented to the Committee on Infractions. They could take into account when fashioning penalties, the fact that the behavior has been deregulated. So we're not insensitive to that fact, but we look at the time uh, in, the, in the, the recruiting competitive or other advantage that that occurred at the time that the violation occurred, not the state of the bylaws today, because as we all know, they change occasionally.
1: And Andy, that's exactly right. Um, As John said, and the way that you described how we would look at it is exactly um, correct. And I love the way you took us full circle, because that really does emphasize the point that the process is put in place um, to look out for the interest of the entirety of the association, including those institutions and individuals that are abiding by the rules that the membership itself decided to have it um, self-governed by. So that's the role that the committees and the panels will play in deciding cases. And if there, if it was a, a rule violation at the time, um, despite the fact that just in order to provide fair process, as we've talked about earlier, it will take some time for for those matters to end up really getting adjudicated and decisions being released. Um, But if it was a violation at the time, as John noted, that provided an unfair advantage, presumably, to that institution over the institutions that they were competing against. And that's what the system is designed to write um right that wrong so to speak so that's the lens in which it will be viewed
0: and i will end with my final soapbox moment which <laughs> is that for all those that complain about rules that are enforced you know what you do you actually go through the legislative process and change it because the membership can change the rules not the national office and i'm not just saying that because we're doing this here on the <laughs> ncaa platform that is the truth Let's deal in facts. And those are the facts. Naima and John, appreciate it. I hope everyone's staying safe. Hopefully at some point we can do these kinds of things in person. Uh, That'll wrap up this edition, episode 43 of our NCAA social series. As always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series for all our episodes, which are archived in one little place for you to just click on and check out all our past uh, interviews and conversations. And it's been highly informational and educational uh, since last March when we started. All right, everyone stay safe. We'll talk again next week.